0: following is a production of the event safety alliance
1: welcome back to the event safety podcast i'm steve edelman this podcast we're going to address an issue which has raised hackles put hairs on end, caused confused looks for as many years as I have worked in the live event industry, talking with friends who are struggling to figure out what do I do with people who require accommodations? How do I deal with them? How do I activate my emergency action plan while still accommodating people who have mobility impairments, who don't see as well as other people, who have hearing issues. What do I do to make sure that everyone is safe regardless of what their physical or emotional or mental capabilities are? How do I deal with the diverse society who comes to our shows, to our houses? What do I do with everyone? Because, well, As the lawyer in the room, I am keenly aware that we have a duty of care to protect everyone who is invited to attend events at our venues. So we don't get to leave anyone behind. So for this event safety podcast, I'm really happy to talk to two of my favorite people who are two of the smartest people in an area that I personally find really difficult, and that is the Americans with Disabilities Act how to give accommodations to people who need them and who are owed them as a matter of law. So on this event safety podcast, We are going to hear from Betty Siegel, who is the Director of the Office of VSA and Accessibility and also the ADA and 504 Compliance Officer at the Kennedy Center for the Performing Arts in Washington, D.C. Insert applause here. Uh, We're also gonna hear from Nanette O'Dell, who is the Disability Services Manager and ADA Coordinator at Talking Stick Resort Arena and Chase Field right here in Phoenix, Arizona, where I'm located. And basically, just so you know, Betty and Nanette are my east of the Mississippi and west of the Mississippi ADA experts. So it's just great to get them into the same conversation because they cover literally our country's worth of expertise about this very important and candidly somewhat difficult issue. Also on the podcast, we're going to have two of my favorite ESA friends who run venues and teach people who will struggle with these precise issues for their entire careers. So we have Eric Colby, who's the performance manager at the Metropolitan Opera in New York, and Danielle Hernandez, who is the director of McAllister Auditorium at Furman University in South Carolina. And they have the really important role of asking good questions, of asking the kinds of questions that actually arise in practice when there is a venue full of people when they actually need to know what do i do so for this event safety podcast we have the smart kids betty and annette and we have the smart kids eric and danielle who ask the questions i Steve Edelman will basically be traffic director and mostly try to stay the hell out of the way because what I tell my clients when they ask me, Steve, you know, can you help me with an ADA issue is no, but I know someone who can. So that's what we're going to do with this event safety podcast. Let me give an important legal disclaimer, which is, first of all, none of us are providing legal advice here, even though we will be talking to some significant degree about our interpretation of a piece of United States federal law, that's part one of the two-part disclaimer for this podcast. Part two of this disclaimer is, even though each of us works for an organization or institution um, which is a prominent well-known one, we are each voicing our personal viewpoints and not speaking on behalf of the institution which writes our paycheck. First, because I suspect many of you podcast listeners either don't know Betty or Nanette, or you've heard of them but have never heard from them, I'm going to start with quick origin stories. One of the things that the Event Safety Alliance tries to do, and frankly, I think we do a pretty good job of it, is we connect our personal lives, our personal stories to the work about which we are passionate. And so I'd like to start there. So starting with Betty Siegel at the Kennedy Center. Betty, how did you get involved in dealing with accessibility issues? Why is this your career's work?
2: Well, unlike many of my colleagues in this field, I did not, when I started this work, have a personal connection to disability. I didn't have a family member or a close friend who had a disability. What I had was a deep and abiding passion for the theater. And I thought that I wanted to be a costume designer because I am such a snappy dresser. Um, And after trying that for a couple of years in the professional world, I realized this was not feeding my soul. I um, came here to DC and got a part-time job at Arena Stage. And I went to my boss and I said, you know, I love working in an arena. I love being a theater manager because it puts me in connection with people. But I, I really need a full-time job. And at that point, what I didn't know was the passage of the 1973 Rehabilitation Act, Section 504, had just been authorized. You know, the regulation, the law passed in 73. The regulations didn't get uh, on the books till 77. And so by the middle, early middle 80s, that regulation was just coming into play for those of us in the cultural arts field. And my boss said, you know, we're doing this accessibility stuff. If you take it over, I'll give you a full-time job. So I did. And it became even—it became this deep passion for me because I believe that everyone should have access to culture and the arts in the United States. And everyone means everyone with a disability too. And so that pathway led me here to the Kennedy Center.
1: Wow. So, Betty, I, I did not know that. You found your passion the old-fashioned way. You fell into it.
2: I fell into it by mistake, I yes. sometimes say.
1: <laughs> that is outstanding. Uh, Nanette, you provide these sort of services to the Phoenix Suns and the Arizona Diamondbacks, <laughs> among other clients. Um, how did this become your passion?
3: Well, I would say if if Betty fell into it, I was born into it. Um, And actually, people ask me quite often. They look at me and they don't see a visible disability. Um, And so they go, how in the world did you get into this field? And my pad answer uh, was and is, my dad is a minister and my mom is a nurse, and here I am. I truly was born into this Um, from the time I was very little I can remember my parents taking us to nursing homes uh, where people were not able to come to church, for example, and they would bring church there, and um, assisting people who had vision loss and hearing loss. Um, I was trained in respite care when I was in high school, so I worked at a school for children with severe disabilities. Um, I became fluent in sign language when I was about 19, 20 years old, and I have um, and, and another thing is, is um, uh, pretty much a very close family friend, kind of like my second father, was a wheelchair user as a result of post polio. And so, growing up, this was certainly pre ADA. Um, I can remember there was times where we couldn't go to certain places because there was no way for him to get there. And so, I truly, uh, and then I also I have some family members, close family members that have um, various types of disabilities. So I have literally lived and or worked with people with disabilities my entire life. Um, it is, I, I say this is not my this is not my job. It's not my career. This is truly who I am to the core. And um, and I feel very fortunate um, as such.
1: Nanette, that, that's, that's great. Um, <clears throat> let, let me now turn to Eric Colby and Danielle Hernandez. Do you have to deal with disability and accessibility issues fairly often? Is this a common thing at, at the Metropolitan Opera for you, Eric, or Danielle for you at, at Furman University? Is this an issue that you have to deal with a lot, or is it just once in a blue moon? The,
0: the the quick answer is yes, and to the point that it's become very much routine, and it's it doesn't even seem all that exceptional uh, most of the time. Uh, it is something that we address on a daily basis.
4: We, we also address it on, on a very regular basis. Uh, most of the time, I think one of the differences is I don't know who's coming. So we are dealing with things in the moment uh, because we are not necessarily, not every one of our events is ticketed. So we don't know who our audience is. We don't necessarily know if any of our performers need accommodation until they walk in the door, which presents some unique challenges, uh, especially if they have not contacted us in advance in any way, which is common that they don't.
1: So let's take a word that you just mentioned, Danielle, accommodation, and let's turn this back to... Betty and Nanette. For this podcast, we're doing something for the first time on the event safety podcast, which is we're focused on a single piece of federal law, the Americans with Disabilities Act. And we use words like reasonable accommodation as if we know what they mean. So Betty, Siegel, Nanette, Odell, what what do these words mean? Well, I'm going
2: to jump in, if you don't mind, Annette, and and talk a little bit about the federal regulation and, and how these words are used in a legal sense. And I do have to make a disclaimer that, um, that nothing I say today can be used as legal advice. Let's just be clear. You can call Steve for that after the podcast is over. So when we talk about reasonable accommodation, we are talking about reasonable accommodations for employees that's the terminology that is specifically used under Title I of the Americans with Disabilities Act. In When we talk about places of public accommodation or state and local government under Titles II and Three of the Americans with Disabilities Act, what the terminology that we want to use is whether something is readily achievable and whether it causes an undue burden. And so um, you can have things that are readily achievable that are physical uh, modifications to the built environment or you can have things that are readily achievable when it comes to communication Uh, then you look at whether it causes an undue burden meaning is it of significant difficulty or expense and the law is really nice because it gives us four or five different elements that we should look at when we're doing an analysis around whether something is readily achievable or whether it is an undue burden
4: so I have a question. Where do private in groups come into this? Because I heard you say public spaces and state government. Well, I'm a private university, and there are a lot of private theaters. Where do those types of do they? play ball with any of the other ones? Or? Boy, Steve started us with the really
2: tough stuff, <laughs> language and the definition. So in the law under the Americans with Disabilities Act, Title Three, a place of public accommodation isn't public as in government public, it's public as in open to the public. So this would cover a university or a theater or a grocery store, etc. So you probably thought your title Two or three, depending on whether you're a governmental um, college or university or a private college or university.
1: And, and Danielle, just to underscore that point, since we're talking about a, a legal term that I actually do know, um, <laughs> <laughs> because public accommodation is a term that comes up all the time in our industry, the distinction is between, say, you know, a a ticketed performance at Furman University versus say a private club whose admission is limited only to members. That would not be a public accommodation under the statute. Is that right, Betty and Nanette?
2: Yeah, that is correct. The other thing that's exempted are of course churches would not fall under that public accommodation
0: definition. Why is that?
2: Separation
3: of state and church.
0: Does that still exist?
3: It does. They, they do still have to follow building codes, though. And building codes oftentimes certainly include um, features of accessibility by far. Um, I have some examples of what would be considered, for example, a reasonable uh, modification or barrier removal. So for example, we've, we've had a season ticket holder who is a chair user. Um, and most of our cup holders are in the front bars um, of the, the front of the accessible seating areas. The cup holders are sort of welded up there, but he sits in an area that's kind of right on the corner of the accessible seating area. He's not able to reach forward, but he can reach just barely to the side. His reach range is very short. And so we relocated the cup holder to an area that was just to the side of him so he could easily reach that. Um, Now, would we do that like um, every time someone came in kind of intermittently, that would be a little bit different. But then this is, again, this is a seasoned ticket holder who's always going to sit in this particular area. So that would be considered very reasonable. What would not be considered reasonable, for example, would be um, we occasionally have people come in who say, um, first up, they may not let me know they need an interpreter. And then they come in and they say, well, do you have an interpreter here? Well, if we've not been notified, we don't. So they'll ask if they can sit in the very front row so they could read the lips of the artist. That's not considered reasonable. couple things. Number one is we oftentimes don't even have any control over the front rows. Number two, they're probably already gone to radio promotions. Number three, the artists don't stay still for you to read their lips. And so that would not be considered reasonable. Um, again, there are some people who may ask for that, but we have to kind of weigh the, the different options there.
1: So, does the reasonableness of a request, can that vary depending on whether someone is the purchaser of a single ticket for one event versus them being a season ticket holder or a subscriber to an entire season? Can that be one of the variables?
2: And then I might disagree on some of these things. Um, Uh-oh. But that's okay, because then it leads to a much more interesting conversation. And I think what helps people understand how this law works is when they see people discuss the kind of gray, fuzzy areas. So my answer to that question, Steve, is that no, it makes no difference. Civil right is a civil right, whether you're there once or you're there a hundred times. And the venue, I would say, incurs the obligation to remove barriers to the extent that it's readily achievable, to provide effective communication. To the extent that it's not an undue burden, whether that person's spending a penny at your venue or spending a hundred million dollars at your venue. Now, I I love these conversations. So, Nanette, what would you? I get a feeling you would say something different.
3: No, actually, actually, I was going to say the same thing. I, I think in the case in the case with this season ticket holder again, where we typically have these cup holders in the front. Um, Again, would we? let's say we had someone came in and they said, you know, we can't reach it. And they just came in for one single event. They couldn't reach it. Could we move that? We could. Now, it's going to be a little more difficult because the event is already, it's pre-event. Everybody's already in. We have to get engineering to come over and move this. It may or may not be easier or difficult to move depending upon how it's adhered to the bars. But in the case with the season ticket holder, because we knew he always needed the cup holder in this particular location, that was certainly something that we did without any question at all, because we wanted to make sure that was, ca- that was handled. Um, but otherwise, no, You're absol- I agree with you completely that it really doesn't matter whether they purchase just one event or, or uh, an entire season, we wanna make sure we accommodate them. And again, what's considered reasonable and not reasonable um, can sometimes vary. Sometimes people do, um, again, we've had the same situation, um, someone who purchases the very, very top row of the upper concourse in an aisle way and then requests an interpreter. And there's literally no place to put the interpreter when you're up at the very top and you're in an aisle because the interpreter would have to sort of stand literally in a pathway on stairs where people are coming up and down the stairs. Fire marshal doesn't like that. So them requesting an interpreter right there was not feasible or reasonable. So we had to relocate them to another location. Um, that was certainly something that we, we handled. And, um, and it worked out really well in the end. But again, sometimes what some people come in and say is reasonable isn't necessarily reasonable. Or if they say the interpreter has to be on the stage, um, sometimes that's not feasible. Um, sometimes there's a lot of other moving parts. And so that's, again, where we really try to educate the, the public and, um, and make sure that we always do our very best in each situation.
2: I, can I jump in really quickly? Eric, I don't want to cut you. Yeah, off. yeah, yeah.
4: Oh, but I think I'm...
2: something Nanette said that I think is really important to, to really hold on to is that it's always a case-by-case judgment about what you consider to be readily achievable or what's an undue burden. And again, you want to start asking yourself the questions um, and considering a variety of different elements and factors, like what is the nature and cost of the action that you're having to take what are the overall these are the things steve that do factor into a decision about whether it's readily achievable or an undue burden um, what are what what are the overall financial resources of the site how many people are employed by this the site what are the legitimate safety requirements necessary for safe operation um, all of those elements, and, and I do refer you back to the regulations, which you can find posted at uh, www.ada.gov, and look for the five elements that the, the U.S. Department of Justice actually gives you to analyze whether something's um,
4: an undue burden or not. So, what are the ramifications of when you try to have a reasonable modification and are unable to achieve it. So uh, here's a a case. We got a call the day of a show. We're in a relatively small market for an interpreter. We called everyone we knew, and no one could get here in time to do it. So we had to tell the patron that we were very sorry. We were not able to secure that. And then we were kind of like, if you come back again, if you give us a little more notice, we might be able to do that. and I think maybe they're from a larger market normally where they can get interpreters, maybe in Atlanta or something where you can get an interpreter in two hours, but we couldn't. Um, do we are we still open to some sort of complaint? I,
3: I personally don't think so. I think I think even in a, a very uh, thick market with a lot of interpreters, a couple hours' notice is not reasonable. And especially if you're talking about a concert, the amount of preparation that goes into preparing for a concert is really quite tremendous. It means several hours. So truly, there is a responsibility on the person, on, the, on the, the part of the person with the hearing loss to notify the venue in advance. Um, because not only is there the interpreter, but the in, in getting the interpreter, but there's also the placement, The person already has their tickets and the location that they are sitting, there is literally no area for the interpreter to be able to stand there so that the person has a good line of sight to the interpreter and then down to the event. Um, that's, That's important. So there's a lot of things. We always make sure that we have it on our website, that we encourage people to contact us as soon as possible. Um, and then, and then, knowing the deaf community, I think that's a big piece too, is knowing your community. So the deaf community here knows that I'm here. They know that they need to contact me in advance, and that we'll always do our very best. But but they're gonna they're gonna have a much better experience if they contact me in advance, and I can even assist them in terms of what their seat and location may be. And we try to give them make sure they have options for not just one area, but if they want to purchase lesser expensive tickets, we actually have a location in the upper concourse. If they want to purchase more expensive tickets, we have locations on the floor also. But, um, but again, it's going to vary per show, and it's, I don't think it's ever reasonable to expect that an interpreter is going to be simply there. Now, at the same time I say that, <clears throat> if you have a show that has multiple showings, so here's an example. We do Disney on Ice a couple times a year, and we'll have about 10 showings or so, usually 30, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. <clears throat> so what I do is I pick one show of each of those days at different times, and we call that our interpreted show. Now, if someone contacts me and they want a different show, none of the schedules work, that's fine. They can absolutely still come and we'll provide interpreters. But we have specified times that we already have designated, and we have an entire kind of see an area blocked out because you might have entire families or groups that come down for the show. And again, we make sure we have really great placement. We do like a group sales thing to bring the the cost down. So in those cases, someone certainly can expect they're going to come to what's already been designated as an access or an interpreted show. But otherwise, um, I don't know, Betty, do you have, do you have experience where people just sort of show up and they're they're ready for their interpreter without (laughs) notice? (laughs) Well, we uh,
2: luckily not, not to date. We have had people request interpreters or an accommodation with very little notice. And I want to commend um, Danielle for how she handled her situation because you did it exactly right. The worst thing that anybody can do is say no. Like, just banish the word N-O from your vocabulary. You always say to a request for accommodation, you know, let me check and see what I can do. In other words, it's what Nanette said. She strives to accommodate the request regardless of when it comes in or how it comes in. And you called interpreters, you documented that you made an effort to identify qualified uh, service providers, and they just were not available. That is not your your responsibility. Once you've made the outreach, that the the service provider is not available, you can't be held responsible for someone else's schedule. Um, and you gave them another option. So remember, the law is about opportunity. You know, are our, our, our patrons being given the opportunity to participate, and you tried to give them that opportunity. It didn't work out that first time. You didn't just say no. I'm sorry. Too bad. So sad. You then gave them another option, another opportunity to fully, to, to get the accommodation they need. And that is the type of analysis that we need to do. Let's be honest, in Washington, D.C., I can turn around an interpreter request with eight hours, six hours, sometimes even four hours of notice. But if I'm the Portland, uh, the Oregon Shakespeare Festival, they have to fly their sign language interpreters in from Seattle. They can't turn around and request that quickly. And so all of those factors play into whether or not something is readily achievable or an undue burden. And, and once, you've met, um, once you've met your obligations, then it would be very hard for someone to hold you accountable.
4: Well, and I will say, in general, we want everyone to have a great time when they come there, whether it's an ADA issue or anything else. Really, our goal, that's just one facet of our overall goal. Eric, I think you had something you started to say.
0: I, I Well, I believe it got covered, but in it, it, um, regards to interpretation of reasonable, now um, the terms that Betty was just using, uh, readily achievable as another way to say reasonable or undue burden is unreasonable. Is this new or has it always been like that and I've been using the wrong language? <laughs>
2: It's always been like that. People get reasonable accommodation and readily achievable undue hardship and undue burden mixed up all the time, and I do too, so don't kick yourself. But do try to keep in mind that reasonable accommodation and undue hardship are terms that are used in employment and discrimination in employment. Readily achievable and undue burden are the terms we want to apply when we're talking about Title III public accommodations, which is what all of us in this room, the institutions we represent are, are public accommodations.
0: So um, just to continue on, on that vein for a moment, where I found that written in, in a, a recent need to look something up uh, in the ADA, which can be challenging at times, and, and eventually you can discover that it may not actually specifically be addressed. But in uh, Title Three, which you mentioned earlier, uh, Section 36.303, in terms of aids and um, devices that we are required to provide, um, unless it would fundamentally alter the, that's a quote, would fundamentally alter the nature of the goods, services, facilities, privileges, advantages, or accommodations being offered, or would result in an undue burden, i.e. significant difficulty or expense, such as you know what we were just discussing with interpreters and short notice and all that. However, um, when it's reversed in that the person with a disability brings their own assistive equipment with them, but you're in a situation where their use of it would fundamentally alter the nature of the good services, facilities, privileges, advantages, or accommodations being offered to everybody else in the venue? At what point does what you are required to provide, uh, I guess the way to put it is, can this be used as your protection as what you can point to as, I can't provide this without making it uh, something different than what's supposed to be presented for everybody else? Does that make sense?
2: Yes. So you, you're you opening up some really interesting um, legal issues. It, it, so. Most regulations give entities what we call defenses, all right? So, in other words, you may not discriminate against people with disabilities unless it's a fundamental alteration, not readily achievable, or it is an undue burden. Those are the three kind of defenses. That Think of it as I'm standing in front of mom, and I broke the lamp. And she says, What's your excuse? And you go, Oh, wait, it was, you know, it was an undue burden for me to keep that (laughs) lamp there. So I knocked it out of the way. (laughs) Um, That's a defense, right? So those are not a very good one. Not a very good one. But those are the three defenses that the ADA does give uh, places of public accommodation under Title III undue burden, uh, fundamental alteration, or not readily achievable. I do caution you that I do not necessarily advise people to try to make the argument that something is a fundamental alteration because you have to prove it. (laughs) And the courts up to now, starting early on after the passage of the Americans with Disabilities Act really didn't accept a lot of arguments that something actually fundamentally altered an experience. So originally there was an argument that sign language interpreters fundamentally altered the theater experience and the courts kind of waved their fingers and went, nah, it really doesn't. And so winning an argument or using the defense of fundamental alterations is a really tough one.
3: Um, You know, it's interesting because I know that that this question was kind of brought up before kind of in preparation and we haven't had a situation like that specifically. I do think that um, certainly if, uh, if, Let's say, here, here's, a, here's an example. Um, we have, uh, let's say, season ticket holders who have a service dog. Um, and uh, they sit in a particular accessible seating area because the service dog, there needs to be a little bit more space. And then we have two more season ticket holders who just purchased and they go to sit in that area and you know what, they have severe allergies to dogs. Hmm. We got a little bit of a dilemma on our hands because they're not gonna be able to coincide in this same uh, space of, that's typically about 10 seats. So what do you do? Um, In this particular case, I'm trying to think of who we addressed first. I think we we talked to the person who had the allergies who had just purchased and season tickets and said, you know what? They they came to us and said, oh my gosh, we can't do this. Um, We're allergic to dogs. We were able to relocate them to another area. And I don't recall if we had another area that was the same price point. But what we did was we gave them the same price point in another area that I think was just a little bit more. We gave them the same price so that we were able to accommodate their needs And then the people with the service dogs didn't have to have the concern of the person who had the allergies um, in a situation where again you have a larger device like that, and and it might be um, interrupting other people. What we would probably try to do is um, relocate the person, upgrade them actually, upgrade them to an area where they maybe have a better experience, have a little more privacy, and it's not going to be um, as difficult for the people around them. Because the truth is, is we would never say anything, but you know, there's going to be people around them going, "Oh my gosh, oh my gosh, that thing is so loud!" and I can't believe they're not doing anything. And you really don't want that person to experience hearing that, you know, the complaining and the whining from the people around them who don't understand that that person needs this to breathe and to live and, and all that. So um, we had a situation um, about a year ago, um, and it it gets into uh, emergency preparedness a little bit too. So we had a situation about a year ago, a gentleman came in, excuse me, he was with, um, a wounded warrior project. And, um, they get tickets oftentimes. And unfortunately they're not for accessible seating. <clears throat> Ironically enough. Um, he came in and his seats were in row 18. Now our accessible scene is row 20 <clears throat> in different areas. So he had seats in row 18 and, um, He didn't like the idea that he was going to relocate. And he had four people, three other people with him. Um, So he was not happy about the idea of having to relocate. Um, And so what he did was he literally got out of his chair um, and crawled down to row 18. Mind you, at the same time, his friends were live streaming him on Facebook as he crawled over, crawled down to row 18 and then went over to the fifth seat over. And so um, our security and our guest services were trying to explain to him, you can't, you can't sit there. And more specifically, it wasn't so much he couldn't sit there, because they offered to take his wheelchair back to guest relations. He he put his wheelchair in front of him, he folded up and put it in front of him. Now, what does this do? It completely blocks the egress of anybody going either way. And so, of course, I was contacted Um, This was like an 830 televised game, by the way. And so I'm contacted, I go and I introduce myself, thank him for his service. And um, uh, essentially explained, you know, you're in you're in section 108. uh, 110 here is accessible seating, we'd be happy to try to relocate you. Um, It would go from seat row 18 to row 20. Well, he didn't want to go from row 18 to row 20. He didn't want to go from section 108 to 110. He said that the seats weren't as good. And I was really trying to very gently explain, you're talking two sections over and two rows up, but it's accessible seating. There's plenty of space and the fire marshal is not going to allow a wheelchair to completely block the passage of other people. Um, He's essentially said, put me on the court or you're going to have to physically remove me. And by the way, this is all being live streamed. So I'm being live streamed during this entire conversation. Um, I had already gone to guest, uh, guest services. I'd been trying to find what some other locations might be. I gave him some options. Of course, there was an upgrade for him to go to the floor. And we weren't going to just put him on the floor through the situation. So what I ended up doing was coming back with a stack of tickets that were in the same price point where we were in seats that were much lower. So the people that were in front of him who literally had his wheelchair on their back Um, I asked them if they wanted to go down to a lower seating area, and they were more than happy to do so. And the people that were sitting next to him on the one side, it was just a couple, I asked if they wanted to go to a different seating area, and they were more than happy to. And then what security did was they told the people that were to the right of him and his three other companions that if in the event of an emergency that we need to evacuate, they need to evacuate from that right portal, because they're not going to be able to obviously on the other side. So they need to go to the right portal. At that point then I went over and I told the gentleman that he is more than welcome to stay there and his wheelchair can stay there. We've relocated people from the event of an emergency and, um, and we kind of solved the issue in a sense. Um, It was not the solution he wanted. He wanted us to put him on the court or he wanted the 15 minutes of fame with us live streaming, carrying him out, which we were not going to do. So we really had to take a look at what, what was his motive? What was reasonable? Um, He was challenging us. And I think something that's pretty important about this is, you know, kind of one of the questions was how do you become an ADA expert? It's not just a matter of knowing what the law is, although that's very important. Um, It's really a matter of having an understanding of people. And what you can do, and what you can't do, and not being afraid to do what you need to do. So, in a situation where maybe somebody who really didn't understand disability, people with disabilities, um, some of the, you know, some people would be afraid to say anything and go, "Okay, okay, well, we're just going to put you on the court because we're afraid to do anything else." Well, that's not reasonable, and not not only that, but it sets up this precedent that's really not a great idea. So, what we did was we, in a sense. Did not play the game, if that's kind of the right wording. We allowed him to stay where he was. Um, And by the way, I had even offered to bring him back to a game and sit in a really great location if he would just move over to this accessible seating area. And he just refused. So we really, truly did offer every option possible. But he made it quite clear we put him on the court or he stays there or we physically remove him. And that's how we solve the problem. So uh, the people in front of him, the people to the side of him were more than happy to go down. He was able to stay there in a seating area with his wheelchair in front of him. If there was an emergency, he had his chair right there. And everybody else to the other side had an alternate uh, passage to get out if they needed to. So um, that was that was definitely an interesting one. Especially live streaming this entire experience was uh was was something you I really would prefer not to do <laughs> typically.
1: So, for those of you on this Event Safety podcast who have been listening to Nanette Odell's story, Nanette, is it fair to say that even with people who have disabilities that you can still be badass? <laughs>
3: <laughs> I mean, uh, me or them. <laughs> you. Yeah. Oh yes. Well it, it it really comes down to sometimes people are afraid to say, no, that's not reasonable. You know, we have we have some people who have said the law says I have to get on the elevator first. Well, there is no law that says you have to get on the elevator first. It's a good practice. But there are some people who, who try to say, I know the law and I'm going to sue you. And so then the staff go, oh, my gosh, oh, my gosh, okay, here, whatever you want. We've had situations where we have one gentleman who's fairly notorious for coming to concerts. He is himself deaf and he sneaks through and he can get back of stage because other people are afraid to say, stop, you need to leave. And so that's where we got me involved, obviously, and and not only communicating with him, but really helping teach the staff that regardless of what his disability is, no one is going to be back of house, period. And I think that's, again, it's important to know what you can and can't say, what you can and can't do. You're not being rude. You're not breaking the law. But when when you kind of do this almost reverse discrimination, that doesn't do anybody any good. It really doesn't, so.
1: Eric Colby, what were you gonna ask?
0: Well, I just wanna um, echo what I hear from the net and others who have been in similar situations. This is a very familiar type of tale. And when I think back, you know, when, when you ask our subject matter experts how they became subject matter experts and had fallen into it, I, I started thinking, well, what the heck is my origin story? How did I get charged with this? And the fact is, um, you know, as soon as somebody tried pulling something that didn't make sense, and when I was getting lectured on what the law is, I'm going to take the time to look it up, which again can be challenging. But whether it was working in operation, setting up venues, and and dealing with authorities, uh, insisting on signage being proper, which in most places it's probably not, um, to abusive customers who don't seem to understand the concept of karma trying to cut the line by uh, appearing to have a disability or claiming a disability that is cognitive but not visible and clearly, uh, well, I don't want to use the word clearly because I could be wrong, but there are times where, yeah, we're faced with just the sort of thing that Nanette was referencing where you have staff that maybe temporary, maybe have not really studied the law and um, the first reaction is, I don't want to be sued. Well, obviously anybody can sue at any time. N- knowing and being able to train your staff, if they don't know, to at least come to somebody who does um, is a, a major part of this and being able to keep your cool when, when uh, I, I'll say, at under attack. Um, I heard somebody once say at a conference, and I, I think it may have even been you, Betty, The ADA is about people. It's not about codes. It's not about laws. And um, we can't get too hung up on citing chapter and verse, but it's important to know chapter and verse because everybody, when claiming a disability, is an instant expert or their companions are instant experts and feel that they're not being accommodated. You can't be intimidated by that. Know what the law is. And um, there are times where we're going to go beyond Reasonable, and uh, as much as we can do that as you did in this situation by offering more than just a straight exchange, um, I think it covers that and is commendable.
1: So there's a, a, a vast universe that we could discuss here, and you know the purpose of a podcast is to touch on the tip of the iceberg to show that there is an iceberg, and to give some sense of the magnitude of it. In this case, we're talking about a really big iceberg. What I suggest is that if you gentle podcast listener, if you have an issue regarding accessibility or how the Americans with Disability Act applies to you in the circumstances of your events for your patrons, that you consult with a subject matter expert such as Betty Siegel or Nanette Odell or whoever is your local person, because in most communities of any size, there will be advocates who are knowledgeable enough, who are valuable people to talk to. So we are beginning a conversation, as we tend to do on these event safety podcasts. We are certainly not covering the universe, nor do we presume to do so. So. With that as kind of the beginning of our closing paragraph, what I'd like to do now is turn to each of our podcast participants and ask for a final remark or a final question or comment just so we can tie a bow on this. So let me start with you, Danielle Hernandez, from uh, Furman University. Last pearls of wisdom from from your end?
4: First of all, I'd, lo- I'd love to say thank you so much to Betty and Annette for joining us today. I loved your origin stories. They, they made me all warm and fuzzy inside. Um, I would love an, an easy way to find some examples of person-first nomenclature because I want to be as respectful as possible to anyone I'm interacting with. And the language that I'm used to is Frankly outdated and I fall back on it uh, because it's what I'm familiar with. So I'm trying to update my language Um, and also if you guys have any pearls of wisdom uh, to something that's sort of new on our horizon the which is the Autistic spectrum and sensory issue patrons that may be in the audience um, how to Help them enjoy the performance when you you you're not able to dedicate a specific performance to them. Um, And you may not know they're there. So if you get a report of a disturbance, graceful ways to handle that. I know there are no easy answers to any of those things. But again, thank you so much. This has been fantastic.
1: All right. Turning to you, Eric Colby from the Metropolitan Opera in beautiful New York.
0: Well, um, I want to encourage all of our listeners uh, for whom uh, the anecdotes and discussions that we've had ring true. I understand that not everybody has the resources of a major performing arts center, but uh, please review your own individual life safety plans, emergency evacuation plan, um, and how you are addressing uh, issues for persons with disabilities and do you have somebody who is dedicated on staff to you when we started this conversation? And for us, of course, it's a, a daily uh, matter to be addressed and do you have somebody or some bodies who can be the ones to speak with the persons with disabilities and how we're going to, Uh, accommodate them uh, in the unlikely event of, is there any sort of one-on-one safety lecture? How are you doing that? Are you doing it in a way that um, encourages calm and um, shows the support and that we are paying attention and we want them to have the same experience as everybody else, understanding uh, this is what we can do, this is uh, what we'll be doing. Do you do those sorts of things? How are you training your staff? And um, who you can speak to in your own local areas, who are, um, who is the authority? Establish relationships with them, and uh, when all else fails, well, call your lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> Only if your lawyer
1: knows what they're talking about with regard to this particular area. Um, and if he doesn't, what's, call what's
4: your, what's your phone number, Steve? <laughs> <laughs> well,
1: well and, and in this case, I truly do punt to Nanette and Betty. So let me now do that. So, Nanette, before we started recording, you made a comment which I thought was very telling, which was... On this podcast, don't use the H word. So we have successfully avoided the H word, but Nanette, you know, why not?
3: Well, um, first of all, I, I, do, I do want to say also, you know, some of these scenarios that we've talked about, we've, we've talked about people who can can ask, you know, kind of be manipulative or abusive or seem that way. And I want to point out that that is not the case with all people with disabilities or people without disabilities. Um, you know, um, for the most part, you, if you have a person who's had a disability their entire life, they're struggling, they're fighting all the time to try to get equal access. And so they, they come to your venue, they come to your event, and they're trying to get equal access, and they're oftentimes faced with with people who don't necessarily understand what they need. And that's very tiring after a long period of time. Or you might have a person who's recently acquired a disability, and they're facing this and going, I had no idea. And now all of a sudden, things that used to be really easy are not. And so I just want to point out that you know some of the scenarios we've used, we have talked kind of from that other perspective. But I really want to point out that overall people overall and people with disabilities want equal access They want to be able to enjoy everything that everybody else does And that's really what we're trying to provide them and we do have to be reasonable about that but but sometimes their struggle really can come across and 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 We just need to be sensitive to that so in regards to sensitive to that this the people first that Daniel was talking about It's that really just that idea that we're talking about people we're not talking about the disabled. We're not talking about the wheelchair users and the crips and all these other words. Um, even even things like um, hearing impaired not politically correct. People who are deaf do not prefer the term hearing impaired. The term handicap is an old word that is just really outdated. And I know it can be confusing because you still see it on the parking, you know, signs and stuff. But the truth is, is we are talking about a person with a disability. Um, and and I think we need to just remember we are talking about people, people first. Um, One of the things you asked about was in regards to, you know, the growing number of people who are on the spectrum. And one of the things that we've started doing is um, we're working with Culture City. Um, I guess I'm kind of doing a quick plug for them because Culture City is a fantastic organization that can come in. One of the things they do is they make sure that at least half of your staff are trained and how to work most effectively. And I, by the way, I try to use, not use the word deal with, we, we work with people. And, and that's, I think, really the, the heart of this is we are working with, we are interacting with, we are trying to um, you know, do the best that we can in, in working with people with disabilities. And again, in this particular case, Culture City is a fantastic resource. <clears throat> you can have your guest services staff that have uh, these Culture City these sensory bags, And they have um, noise-canceling headphones. They have little fidget spinners. They have communication cards. So like one side is your emotions, one side is things you need. Um, They have little weighted lap bags. So again, I would highly recommend them. And then I wanted just one final thing was in regards to just the the culture and the respect, but also, again, emergency preparedness, this is such an important piece, is years ago, we made some modifications to um, several of our accessible seating areas where there had been a platform behind it that seated about eight to 10 people. And we actually cut that in half and made it so it only seated about, seated about, four to five people. And it created this unofficial storage space to the side of, again, the back of the accessible seating areas. The reason we did that was because there are so many people, they want to sit in a standard chair. They don't want to stay in their wheelchair or their scooter if they don't have to. And so they're able to now put their scooter or their wheelchair or their walker canes, crutches behind them in this unofficial storage area, sit in a standard space and and have that experience like many other people. What that also means is that they can then independently go to the restroom, the concessions, or most importantly, God forbid, if they have to evacuate, they have their mobility device with them. And so, again, this is a customer service thing that is really also very much geared towards making sure that people can evacuate the building if they need to, in a, hopefully a more safe and timely manner. So, um I could go on and on. Uh, we don't have enough time, but I thank you so very much for this, and uh, I look forward to answering any other questions
1: you have. That, that's great, Nanette. Thank you. Um, Betty, I'm going to conclude with you, and I'm going to tee this up and then ask you a question which, God, I hope is rhetorical. So <laughs> y- you have You started this podcast by correcting my language, that I had used the incorrect statutory reference. And so I'm gonna try to say it back correctly this time because it is so important, and then I'll ask my question. So first, do I have this right, that the actual legal standard for public accommodations under the Americans with Disabilities Act is that we are trying to achieve results which are readily achievable, which do not impose an undue burden. Is that the legal standard for public accommodations? Correct. Okay. So with that, and I wanted to get that out so that our podcast listeners had the opportunity to write it in their notes, because that's important stuff. Here's the actual question. Betty Siegel, is that a bright line test or... Do event professionals actually have to use professional judgment based on their circumstances?
2: Yes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you, know, I mean, you have to remember, like the net was the point that Nanette was trying to make that's so really important to remember is that we are talking about human beings. And Eric mentioned it too. This is not a law that you can always point to some black and white piece or letter of the law that's going to always say do x and you won't be sued do y and you won't have a complaint it is about human beings so every situation is case by case every situation depends on the judgment of the venue to determine what is readily achievable given the circumstances circumstances and situation and what they can do for that does not cause them an undue burden and also What level of modification to their policies, procedures, and practices can they implement in order to not discriminate against people with disabilities? And again, that's the really important piece. Everything we do, you go back and you ask yourself, am I not, am I discriminating or not discriminating against people with disabilities? Am I welcoming people into my venue or am I excluding people from my venue? Um, There's some great resources out there, Steve, that I feel like maybe your podcast listeners would like to know about. Um, I did mention earlier uh, www.ada.gov. Sometimes I really think it's best to go right to the resource. That's the U.S. Department of Justice Technical Assistance um, site. There's also the ADA centers, um, which you can get to at... um, a D-A-T-A dot O-R-G. They do have a great publication about people first language there. Um, they also have fabulous one to ten pagers on some really practical issues of accommodation like how do you stripe your parking lot um i I love those two sites they 're my favorite go to websites to get really tangible information and I do have to make a plug for the Kenny Center 's Leadership Exchange and Arts and Disability Conference, which is coming up uh, in August two thousand and nineteen Unfortunately, we are sold out, but we do have a waiting list and if you can 't join us in August of two thousand and nineteen, do consider joining us in August of two thousand and twenty in Raleigh, North Carolina. The people that come to this conference. Are like you. They are either um, they are working in venues and they are committed to this idea of access, inclusion, and equity. And it's a great place to learn and to to, to teach. So we both share, we, we always share, and in you are always constantly swapping roles of being the giver and the taker of great information and resources. So thank you so much for this opportunity to share that information.
1: That is a great place to wrap up. So let's do that first by thanking our podcast presenters today, uh, Danielle Hernandez from Furman University, Eric Colby from the Metropolitan Opera, Nanette O'Dell from Talking Stick Resort Arena and Chase Field, and Betty Siegel from the Kennedy Center. Um, As I said, This is a conversation that we have started. I'm looking at my notes, and did we talk about service animals? We did not. Did we talk about the need to provide wheelchairs when people asked? No, we didn't talk about that. How about shelter in place? No, we didn't get there either. Or personalized assistance, there was a reference to it and nothing more. So many questions. Obviously, we will have to revisit this. So here's my open request uh, to all come back again because there's much more turf to cover here. But for now, uh, we are done talking about this particular topic. So on behalf of myself and the Event Safety Alliance, as well as Jacob Warwick, who makes the magic happen, I'm Steve Edelman. Thank you for listening to the Event Safety Podcast, and we will talk to you again very soon. Be safe out there.